0: This is an ABC podcast. Monetary policy really is a blunt tool mm. and it and it's an unfair tool. It, it hits those with the most amount of debt.
1: I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change
2: a government. It was a green slide.
3: Safe Liberal seat, two term incumbent. Independence we need to go back to our values our principles, look closely at what has happened
2: Our policies will be squarely aimed at the Forgotten Australians in the
0: suburbs across regional Australia.
3: Welcome to the Party Room. I'm Fran Kelly, joining you from Gadigal land of the Aora Nation, and it's great to be back. But no, PK, David, you, here you are again.
2: David Spears here. Uh, yes, filling in for PK once again, joining you from the lands of the Ngunnawal and Nations at Parliament House in Canberra. Great to be chatting with you, Fran. But yeah, PK, off this week because here's the big reveal... She's wrapping up a very exciting Four Corners project, which you'll be able to tune into on ABC TV on Monday or on iView whenever you like after that.
3: That's right. Certainly keeping you busy, this Four Corners. It's Investigating... Maybe we could call it the latest front in the culture wars, the arguments, the science, the human condition around transgender healthcare, particularly for young people in this country. So tune in. David, back to the week of politics. The Reserve Bank hit pause on interest rates for July that saw millions of Australians with home loans breathe out, I think. I mean, people are already paying on average, this is a staggering figure, an extra 400 bucks a week because of the run of rate rights. Now, that's an awful lot of money, and it might not be the end of it either. The ABC's business editor, Ian Verinder, is going to join us to help break down this, the good, the bad, and the ugly when it comes to interest rates. (laughs) But, David, while I was away on holidays, I tuned in to the Party Room podcast, of course. Of course you did. It was a pretty rough few weeks for the government, wasn't it, the last few weeks of parliament and the wash-up, under pressure over housing, over the voice, over the economy. So I imagine the winter break didn't come soon enough for the PM. But this week... Anthony Albanese got a bit of a reprieve, doing what prime ministers love to do, which is look prime ministerial, standing alongside President Joko Widodo. A short but sweet visit, 36 hours on the ground, with a fair bit packed into it. David, while Anthony Albanese and Joko Widodo were sort of talking turkey in private and having photo shoots in front of the Sydney Harbour. The domestic political pressures didn't stop and the PM would have had one ear to the rumblings going on in the background and there are quite a few rumblings. They're getting louder and louder, aren't they?
2: Oh, particularly on The Voice. I mean, you're right, that uh, quick visit from Joko Widodo all went really well, apart from the weather. So, yes, he'd be pleased with that. I think the the biggest concern for the government right now is what's going on with the debate over the Indigenous voice. And this has, again, been a big focus this week with, well, a couple of things happening, really. The no campaign in the coalition focusing their argument against the voice on the grounds that it's going to be able to weigh in on absolutely everything. We saw Linda Burney, the minister, kind of shift strategy, really, trying to put some guardrails around what The Voice will do, in her view at least, at least what what she as Minister would want The Voice to focus on. She'd be asking The Voice to consider four main priority areas, health, education, jobs and housing. Here she was at the National Press Club.
1: When I meet for the first time with The Voice, I will say, bring me your ideas on how we stop our people from taking their own lives. Bring me your ideas on how to help our kids go to school and thrive. Bring me your ideas on how to make sure our mob live healthy, happy lives. How we ensure more people have jobs with the independence and purpose that that brings. How we keep alive 65,000 years of culture and make it stronger.
2: That was the Minister for Indigenous Australians, Linda Burney, there, outlining those four priority areas she wants the voice to focus on, should the Australians vote yes at the referendum. But Fran, the voice is meant to be independent, decide what it will pursue. So this is a bit of a difficult tightrope to walk, isn't it?
3: Well, it is. And I'll come back to the thread of trying to curb its independence too, what that might mean in terms of the support on the progressive side of the electorate. I thought it was a pretty good performance, actually, by Linda Burney, one of her strongest mm-hmm. yet. But if you go to the wording that we're going to be asked to vote on and the words that would be inserted into our constitution, it says, a proposed law to alter the constitution to recognise the first people of Australia by establishing the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. And then it goes on to say, there shall be a body to be called the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. The Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice may make representations to the parliament and the executive Government of the Commonwealth on matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. So it doesn't put a ring around what matters, David, and Mm. this is where the scare campaigns are coming. But then the third paragraph to go into the constitution, if we vote yes, is the parliament shall, subject to this constitution, have power to make laws with respect to matters relating to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice, including its composition, functions, powers and procedures. So it's a little unclear whether the minister can actually direct under that paragraph three or whether, as a minister, she would say, this is where I want you to focus and expect that yeah. the voice would respond to that. So, you know. I mean,
2: she's she's saying she'd be asking them and obviously they can still – they have the remit to – Yeah, pursue other areas outside those four priorities, but that's what she would be asking as minister for them to do. And look, I think she's chosen their four extremely obvious areas that the voice would uh, want to look at, right? I don't think you're going to find, uh, you know, any indigenous community that's going to say there's something in those four areas they don't want. Addressed. I mean, what she's trying to do here is shut down some of the frivolous arguments around will the voice weigh in on the Reserve Bank decisions, defence decisions. Will it want to be advising on every little thing? I mean, it was getting
3: ridiculous in questions. Yeah, right. There were questions about will the voice advise on parking tickets on military bases.
2: There, There was also, you know, Linda Burney's own. slip i'd call it where she suggested it wouldn't advise on australia day now maybe that won't be a priority initially but you can't say it won't advise on an issue that is of concern to a lot of indigenous and non-indigenous australians the date of australia day
3: yeah because the clamour is getting louder every year so i imagine at some point it will but i think she's trying to as you say highlight what would the priorities be and these are the obvious priorities Mm, in fact this is the reason why the uluru statement from the heart came up with the notion of the voice because the best capacity we have to try and improve things for Indigenous Australians is the closing the gap strategies and it's not working. We're going backwards on some of those.
2: I think it was an understandable idea to try and put those four priority guardrails out there and say, you know, here's what we want the voice to do. I also thought it was a strong part of the address from Linda Burney to focus on those close the gap targets, the appalling lack of progress mm. there. Just, you know, some people, yes, will be aware of it, but I think a lot of people won't be aware of just how disadvantaged Indigenous Australians are when you go through that list. So I thought that was quite effective and I thought too the the practical example she gave of how a particular community might be able to use the voice to raise their concerns about school attendance, for example. She had two or three practical examples and I think that yeah, was... Yeah, birthing
3: on country was another one yep. because, of course, child mortality and low birth rates are huge problems for Indigenous Australians.
2: Yeah, you know, these are stronger arguments, I think, but we also saw in the speech, and I'm just not sure how effective this is, a more aggressive pushback at the No campaign, calling out Peter Dutton as a bully boy.
1: And I don't think the business community will be very impressed by the bully boy tactics of Peter Dutton.
2: And that then just triggers this... This back and forth. You then had Jacinda Numping the Price calling Linda Burney, accusing her of bullying tactics, and gets it back into this political to and fro, and I just don't know how effective that is. I, I yeah. think the, the stronger arguments are around positive change that the uh, proponents suggest the voice will be able to Yeah, deliver.
3: I want to come back to that the tit-for-tat mm, slag-off mm. that happened at the end of this. I think you're right. Was that a strategically smart thing to do, to insert that, when you've just put forward the positive case? Because the whole driver from the Uluru Statement for the Heart coming up with The Voice was, what will shift the dial? Will a voice to parliament do it? That's a $64 yeah, million dollar question. what we've been doing
2: for years isn't working. And, exactly. And, you know, that that's pretty hard to argue against. Peter Dutton, for his part, also shifted gear a little this week on The Voice too. He's been extremely critical this week of big corporations who've been throwing their support, including money, behind the yes case. Here he is. I think there are many uh, corporates at the moment, uh, frankly, who uh, lack a, a significant backbone. Uh, there are a lot of people who are just craving... Popularity and uh, uh, and p- trying to please people on in, in the Twitter sphere. There are a lot of CEOs and chairs who have very different conversations with you in private uh, than what they say publicly. That was the opposition leader speaking to Sky News, Fran. Strong language there, and he's backed it up throughout the week. He's referred to Linda Burney and CEOs as elites who are yelling at Australians and telling them they're racist if they don't vote for The Voice. He started talking about Anthony Albanese and his Kirribilli mansion being out of touch uh, on cost of living and focusing too much on The Voice, um, directly calling out Bunnings for giving money to the Yes campaign rather than lowering lowering their prices. Fran, it's a very populist pitch, isn't it?
3: It is a popular pitch, but yes, this whole focus on the elites is, I think, something that actually I think it may have spooked the Yes campaign a little. This is not a new tactic for Peter Dutton. When I heard him take potshots at the CEOs like that, David, it brought to mind Peter Dutton's contribution, one of them during the same-sex plebiscite debate when Peter Dutton also took a pot shot at the CEOs, telling them to stick to their knitting. So this is really him dusting off the old playbook, Mm. getting into the elites. It's not great for national unity, I don't think. I think Peter Dutton would be wiser to stick to, you know, the straight up concerns that some people do have. Charles Croucher put it well on RM Breakfast this week when he said he's pitching at the streets versus the elites. I find that pretty... Disheartening. Yeah, I mean, yes,
2: you could argue there are elites backing it. Not an elitist idea, and there's plenty of <laughs> people who aren't elites who have really driven this from the get go. So, but equally, I think the argument from Linda Burney that it's patriotic to vote yes, and therefore not patriotic. Yeah. To vote no, I think we're getting into territory that we don't really need to. With yeah.
3: this, I- I absolutely um, agree. I mean, you know, when you when you reach for patriotism, <laughs> yeah. you really think, oh, they're
2: in trouble. You can see that the yes case are getting frustrated obviously looking at the polls and seeing the No campaign getting away with some of the things they're saying. And and, and some, as was called out on 7.30 in a fact-check piece they did, some of the claims from the No campaign have been false. You heard Linda Burney refer to the Trump-style post-truth tactics. You can really see that there is a degree of frustration there.
3: Yeah, and what she's talking about in that is this notion of the elites versus the other. You know, it's very Donald Trump. It's It also, you know, worked in terms of the Brexit campaign. It's a very ugly turn, I think. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I think the minister, though, was completely justified in calling out that Pauline Hanson comment about, what did she say? A a real A real real black, yeah. As Linda Burney said, very offensive phrase to use, suggesting that other Indigenous Australians may not be real uh, Indigenous Australians. And I think she was completely justified in calling that out. And having a go at the media, too, I thought that was fair enough. Some of the pushback uh, has its risks, but some of it is
3: justified. suggests, I think, this next few months running up to the referendum are going to get pretty willing. And I think maybe what we should all keep front of mind is the impact this will be having on Indigenous Australians in particular, because when the gloves are off, you know who gets knocked around the hardest, and that's those who are at the focus of this, and it'll be our Indigenous Australians. So I think we should all be mindful of that.
2: Fran, perhaps we should move on to the National Anti-Corruption Commission because it officially launched on Saturday. We had an update Wednesday afternoon from the NAC uh, that by the close of business uh, on the 4th of July, they had received 186 reports submitted by the uh, the website, uh, taken 116 calls. They said s- people were 60... just
3: waiting; they were just wow. waiting, weren't they, to just <laughs> they sit sure down and were. press the get yeah, to so the Yeah, so that's phone. in
2: two days, the first two days. Um, around 60 of the referrals relate to matters well publicised in the media. They've said not you know new matters that we haven't traversed in in the public debate at least. Uh, earlier in the week, the commissioner of the NAC, Paul Brereton, uh, issued a very clear statement on the intentions that, uh, that the body has, his approach to the role, and also warning that it's not going to tolerate a politicisation of this anti-corruption commission.
0: It may sometimes be in the public interest that we open an investigation to clear the air, and I will use the power to make public statements about corruption issues to do so. And should it be sought to weaponise the commission through inappropriate and unfounded referrals... I will not hesitate to use the power to make public statements if necessary, to avoid damage to reputations and to say that the referral was inappropriate.
3: That's Paul Brereton, the new commissioner of the uh, National Anti-Corruption Commission. Uh, David, he was pretty clear there. He's not mm-hmm. going to really um, have any patience with politicians who might try and politicise this. But that notion of, you know, he told us that a lot of the calls and a lot of the uh, referrals had been about matters well publicised in the media. Do you think he's referring to, for instance, the PwC scandal? We know the Green Senator Barbara Pocock, has referred PwC to, to the NAC. It also comes in the wake of the allegations of misconduct against former frontbencher Stuart Robert, which he strenuously Mm. denies. Do you think that's what he's hinting at here, that those sorts of things are well and truly covered, no one else needs to refer them?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, if he's saying around 60 matters mentioned in the media or covered in the media, yeah, that, that's exactly what he's talking about, right? The PwC tax scandal, Stuart Robert, perhaps even the, the Liberals who want to refer uh, the compensation payout to Brittany Higgins as well. Look, I, I thought it was important uh, to hear him say that he is going to call out uh, the sort of frivolous referrals that mm. are just done for political reasons. You know, I think that's really <laughs> encouraging to hear. You know, the great fear is this becomes a body that's simply used as a political weapon to damage Europe, the reputation of your opponent by saying, I'm referring you to the NAC, when there may not be you know, uh, much smoke, let alone fire there at all. So,
3: it's also worth noting that they don't need to have things referred to them. The no. Commission itself is reading the media, listening to the media, consuming the media. It's consuming presumably government reports at a greater depth than most of us are. So it has its own capacity to decide it will um, investigate.
2: Yeah, and I think the, the other comment he made, I don't have the exact quote here, but not looking back so much as looking at current issues mm. I thought that reference was really interesting as well. I mean, I don't know what you take from that, friend. Does it mean things like, uh, you know, sports riots, pork barrelling under the Morrison government might not necessarily be. Uh, the target of the knack?
3: Yeah, that's what came to my mind. I imagine that sports rorts was one of those things that might have been referred by a lot of people.
2: Yeah, indeed. Also worth mentioning that we're recording this Thursday. Tomorrow, the RoboDebt Royal Commission is going to be handed to the government and released promptly. They're planning to release it around lunchtime Friday and they wanted to get that out as quickly as they can. It will go to who was responsible for this unlawful scheme within the public service and the the Morrison Ministry at the time. So that's going to be a big story and uh, we'll see how that plays out over the coming days. But Fran, it's a perfect time to bring in our guest. Let's
3: do it. <laughs> Ah, oh, look who's just wandered into the party room, Ian Verinder, the ABC's business editor, a friend of this podcast. Great to have you back, Ian.
0: Thanks, Fran. G'day, Ian. David, how are you going? Very well. Sounds like I need a drink here. <laughs> oh,
3: come on! Don't let don't don't let be told that you don't have that martini, Ian. We've been talking interest rates and how ratepayers dodged a bullet because the RBA hit pause again this month. It's point one percent. That's where they stand. A very welcome. report. Brief. Already these rates have added four hundred plus a week to the to the average mortgage, which is a hell of a lot. Was that in itself the reason for the bank to hold off, to check the impact of that that slug, which surely must be slowing household spending, you'd think.
0: It's certainly slowing household spending. And you know what? No one's going to really know what the true impact of all of this rate hiking that we've had in the past year. No one's going to know the full impact until sometime next year, possibly the middle of next year. So this is the kind of time lags that are involved when you're using monetary policy to try and slow down the economy. And it's been exaggerated this time around because so many households have been on these fixed rate loans that are then going to just suddenly veer off into a much, much higher variable rate loan. Trying to control inflation with monetary policy as we're trying to do at the moment and the rest of the world too, it's like turning the Queen Mary around. You know, you you throw out all the anchors and you turn off the engines, but it just keeps going on and on. And you don't know the full impact for a long time down the track. And the closer you get to the, where you should be, the optimum level of interest rates, the, the more risky it is that you'll overshoot and you'll go too hard and you'll tip everything into, into a recession. So just on that optimum level
2: uh, question, that's the $64 million question, isn't it? Are we at the optimum level? So the statement from the Reserve Bank Governor this week was to hold steady, basically, in light of the uncertainty surrounding the economic outlook. It's a wait and see approach. What's the Reserve Bank, Ian, going to be looking for now as it weighs up whether to
0: hike again? David, they're completely dominated by this, well, a couple of theories, but one is around interest rates and what the level of interest rate we should have to get inflation down to a, uh, a level between 2 and 3%. That's something that's come about, that whole ethos, really in the last 30 years. And I, I'll just throw something out at you. Oh, and we, I love it when you do this. <laughs> what happens if the past 30 years has been an aberration? What happens if we can't get back to 2 to 3% of inflation because all the central bankers and politicians all around the world slap themselves on the back and congratulate themselves because they tamed inflation during the 90s and through the, you know, this, uh, this century. But what if it was all down to other factors other than just monetary policy and, and economic management? I mean, what if it was down to things like globalisation, the fact that China became the world's factory and started basically exporting lower prices around the world? And all mm. of those things have now come to a grinding halt so inflation may never get really back down to that 2 to 3% level. And here we are continually jacking up interest rates all the way, you know, to try and achieve what may what well may be, be unachievable. Absolutely. And there's a few
3: golden rules that have gone by the wayside. So, I mean, we've got record low unemployment that mm. is staying low at the same time that we're not growing. And this is also one of the banks red lights, isn't it, to look at what's happening with with employment? That's
0: really important because there's this article of faith out there from central bankers called the the Phillips Curve, which is this loose relationship between inflation and unemployment. And while they won't really tell you this, what they want to do is they want to achieve a certain level of unemployment Mm. that they think will bring inflation down. Now, full employment just after the war was 0% unemployment. Suddenly it went to 5% unemployment. So they deliberately targeted The idea that you needed 5% of the workforce out of work and on the scrap heap to get inflation under control. So
3: the risk here, I mean, what they're dealing with is a risk analysis, and the risk is moving into recession. Yep. Finance Minister, she was Acting Treasurer this week, Katie Gallagher, says recession is not the government's expectation.
0: That's not our expectation. That's not the Treasury forecast. And uh, I note in the decision of the bank yesterday, um, they do have a line in there that, that says the board is still expecting the economy to grow as inflation returns to the 2 to 3% range. So that's the advice uh, the government has.
3: So the narrow path to avoid recession we keep hearing hmm. about what will determine if we fall off it? What will determine whether we tip into recession or stay safely the other side? And really, does it matter? I mean, maybe people are feeling like it's a recession at some quarters of the economy already?
0: I think so. And I mean, that is something the Reserve Bank is already noticing and they keep harping on about it, the dramatic drop off in consumer spending, in household spending. And that's actually the biggest component of GDP, household consumption. So if that really falls off really quite dramatically, then there's really no way we can avoid a recession. It's always really difficult through these kind of periods to clamp down on inflation without going into recession. You know, at least a old one. New Zealand's already in recession. They actually targeted uh, a recession over there um, late last a recession year. recession we had to have. Well, late last year, the you know Reserve Bank of New Zealand said, look, we'll be in recession by October next year. Uh, they managed to achieve that rather earlier than they expected. But uh, so, you know, job done. Just for the sake of debate, can I just put the glass half
2: full uh, version forward, <laughs> I suppose? That...
3: That's what we love about Zealand. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: I was in uh, Melbourne a couple of weeks ago and wandering through the, the city on a Saturday night. It was heaving. Um, you know, Canberra, I can tell you, uh, on a Saturday night uh, also plenty of people out and about. You've got a jobs market that is remarkably strong. You do have inflation coming down. You look at the last two monthly figures and that's that's pretty clear. Yes, a lot of people are under pressure still. Inflation's still too high and yes, there is still a very risk that we do dip into
0: recession. But we are still on that narrow path at the moment, aren't we? Look, if you think about averages, yes, we are. The problem is none of us are average. And mm. I think the the situation we have now has been really quite exaggerated by that expectation that the Reserve Bank sent out there during the pandemic that we wouldn't have rate hikes until 2024. Mm. And that enticed a lot of people into the housing market at extraordinarily high values. So what we've got at the moment is this large section of the population around my age who are, you know, reasonably well off, who've paid off their house, who, you know, aren't really being affected Mm. by interest rates at all and are out there spending money. And then you've got an extraordinarily large cohort of households that are leveraged to the absolute hilt that are looking at, you know, down the track of a, you know, a massive increase in their uh, repayments Mm. and possibly a slowing economy with a lift in unemployment. So you've got- And the
2: renters too are really- Yeah, yeah.
0: Can't really recall a time when there's been such a dramatic shift towards, you know, the polar opposites. Mm. Well,
3: the opposition, it won't surprise you to know, thinks the government isn't doing enough, thinks they're not on the right path here. Here's the shadow finance minister, Jane Hume. The government could be doing more to create a deflationary environment. It's not just enough to wave the white flag and say inflation or the direction of inflation isn't our responsibility. You have to make sure that your fiscal policy, which is the responsibility of the government, mm. is moving in the same direction. So what could the government be doing more to create a deflationary environment? What are they doing or not doing that fueling inflation?
0: Well, I guess the orthodox economic answer to that would be you cut back on your spending or you raise taxes. And I think if you raise taxes, the opposition would be out there you know, jumping up and down about that. If they cut back on spending, they'd be jumping up and down on that. I do recall that the opposition was in government for a good decade. And uh, right up to the very end, they were blaming the then opposition, the current government, for the uh, mess that they inherited during that period. So they did deliver a lot of uh, deficits through their period. We're now going to have the first surplus in in a very, very long time you really need to deliver a surplus. It takes Take- money out of the economy, essentially. The Doesn't econ- it
3: just mean there's more money come into the economy?
0: Well, that's true, but a lot of it is coming out and into the government coffers purely by inflation because it's driving salaries higher. They're going into higher tax brackets. So there's money coming out of people's pockets and going into the government coffers. Now, if you look down the track to the uh, stage three tax cuts, for We're instance... We're going to put that all back in. Yeah, you'd have to say that that is a very expansionary and very inflation inflationary So hopefully inflation mm. isn't a problem when those stage three tax cuts. Come but
2: even course. factoring those in, you still have the tax take bracket creep
0: increasing quite
2: markedly over the next 10 years. Yep. They're going to have to, even after the stage three tax cuts, they're going to have to return some of that down the track uh, at some point. But when we look at what governments can do right now to tackle inflation, and Ian, your point is, is so right about the unfairness of interest rates, who's not feeling it at all and who's absolutely copying it from the higher rates. What can government do, whether it's spending cuts or higher taxes, that actually balances that out a little, hits those who aren't feeling a thing
0: from the interest rates. Yeah, that's a really good point because, as you say, monetary policy really is a, it's a blunt tool mm. and, it, and it's an unfair tool. It, it hits those with the most amount of debt, whereas a government can do things like raising taxes for everybody. It can decide to, let's say, you know, we're going to take 5% extra of your income and put it into superannuation uh, so for your benefit down the track, but just simply remove money from the economy from everybody's pocket on a more equitable mm. basis. Essentially, you've got to take money out of the economy if you want to try and slow down inflation. And governments have the ability to do that on a much more equitable basis than monetary policy just simply raising interest rates. But, you know, over the past 30 years, governments right across the developed world have abrogated the responsibility for economic management. The ethos was small government, no taxing, no spending or minimal and leave the central banks to do all the heavy lifting when it came to actually controlling inflation.
3: In the past, I've spoken to economists who've talked about sort of good debt and bad debt and good spending and bad spending. We've got this surplus. It's a surprise surplus. The Treasurer hasn't told us exactly how much, but we're expecting it'll be 19 billion plus Plus, government at the moment, I think, has said it's going to plough all that back into consolidated revenue. But is there a case for, for instance, siphoning off $5 of that to address the housing crisis, to tip into that housing fund that the government can't get past the Greens and the opposition right now? It would help them politically, but it would also perhaps help You know, alleviate some of the pain of the housing
0: crisis. It would, but as soon as you start tipping money back into the economy, Mm. you start firing up inflation again. So there's no easy answers to any of this. Uh, I mean, you could do that in conjunction with another policy, which then took money from people who are more well off. But that Mm. then goes against all the ethos that we've been hearing about why (laughs) we need stage three tax cuts. The other,
2: the other argument the government will make on going further on that housing fund is there's only so much the housing market can Can handle. Yeah, Yeah. And then you do start to push up construction costs. Just quickly, Ian, on Philip Lowe, um, it was interesting to hear because we're waiting to see what the Treasurer does this month in terms of announcing a replacement for the Reserve Bank Governor or not. I think expectations are that he will. But the opposition, and we heard Jane Hume earlier, she said in that same interview that it would be a real shame if the government decides to replace Philip Lowe when his term is up in September. What do you make of that and what their thinking or strategy might be? It's
0: hard to figure out really because he hasn't been the world's most popular character. And I mean, look, I've met him quite a number of times and, and you'd have to say that in terms of a human being, he's an absolutely thoroughly nice person I'd with, with, with a great sense of community spirit to try to do the best to, for the nation. You know, that's That's his overarching ambition, whereas a lot of people are just out there to try and make as much money for themselves as they can. It's quite... Extraordinary that he's actually become this pillar of every yeah. all the community hatred. Has been I mean, the critics, the critics say he lacks
2: empathy and obviously the misguidance on keeping rates low. Like that was
0: lot. the big mistake when he kept saying it. I just kept thinking. I've never heard anything like this. Why are you doing this? Why put a date on it? Why not just say, we don't anticipate that we'll be raising interest rates for the foreseeable future? I know why they did it, because they had a bond buying program and they were trying to muscle the money market down to... Get their, the rates, keep them down till twenty twenty four because they had their bond buying program stretching out to twenty twenty four, and it was targeting the twenty twenty four bond. So that was the reason to do it. But the money markets just drove an absolute steamroller over their uh, over their strategy, and they had to give it up. And when they gave it up, of course, money market rates went up, and they had, and that was the end of it all.
3: And just more broadly, this week, the opposition leader Peter Dutton took aim at Anthony Albanese, accused him of being obsessed with. the The Voice, and said that he's taken his eye off the ball of economic policy as he's focused on The Voice and other matters. Is there any evidence for that?
0: I can't really see it at the moment. I mean, you know, you can, you can say it was dumb luck and I have seen some uh, opposition members talk about the government's, uh, you know, surplus being a question of dumb luck, but, you know, the opposition was in power for 10 years and didn't deliver a surplus and they could have over those years. They had every opportunity to do so. I mean, look, when you're in opposition, that's your job. You've got to go out and criticise the government. But uh, it is a bit rich when you look back at the history of it all. And
3: that's our job, to work out what's the politics of... It all. Ian, great to have you with us. Thanks so much. Thanks, thanks,
0: thanks, David. We'll move to questions without notice. We'll give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. Well
3: Order. Yeah, the bells are ringing, which means it's time for question time here on The Party Room. And this week's question comes from Sarah. Sarah says, hi, guys. Love the podcast. Thanks, Sarah. Considering the RBA's decision to increase interest rates is a blunt tool which hurts regular households, be they homeowners or renters, are there any other ways to manage inflation that haven't been considered by the government, like more taxes on big business or something else? David?
2: Yeah, we kind of discussed this with Ian, and he's right. The government can uh, increase taxes or reduce spending. That's how fiscal policy can be used to actually tackle inflation. There are all sorts of problems politically and You could argue economically as well with with some of those options politically, you know, hiking taxes or cutting spending ain't a popular thing to do. And look, if you did, you know, whack a new tax on big business as we're heading into slower economic growth and potentially even a recession, you know, there'd be all sorts of concerns about what that might do to jobs as well. So they're really fine, balanced things. But it's true that the government is really leaving it up to the Reserve Bank Mm. to tackle this inflation problem.
3: Yeah, that's true too. I mean, as Ian pointed out, we're about to take more taxation off people Mm. with the stage 3 tax cuts. Now, that's not business, but business is arguing that our company taxes are higher than most of our competitors. So it's difficult here. The other Mm. element, though, is productivity and our productivity in this country has stalled for some time now. So what changes that? Yes, your taxation arrangements can change that. Your IR arrangements can change that. But also your research and development, for instance, the yes. level of trading in the in the community. I mean, this government's targeting that with fee-free uh, TAFE places, for instance.
2: Yeah, it would point to what it's doing with its manufacturing fund, what it's doing with its climate change policies as well to you know, help along this transition. All of that is going to have a productivity payoff. It takes a long time for productivity changes to actually show up in the economy. Look, I'd also note the and the Reserve Bank Governor has backed up the government on this, what they've done with the caps on energy prices, yes, contentious, but has put some downward pressure on inflation as well. So there are things, market interventions like that, that it can do.
3: So that's it. Please don't forget, we love your questions. Send them in. We're especially fond of receiving them in the form of a voice recording because we just like to hear from you. So it's easy to do on your smartphone. Email it to the party Room at abc.net.au and we'll leave that email in the show notes too so you can easily share your next question for us as soon as you finish the podcast. And
2: remember to follow The Party Room on the ABC
3: Listen app so you never miss an episode. And that's it. It's great to be back. David, you've been an absolute star. Thank you so much.
2: An absolute pleasure, Fran. Thank you. See you, busy. See ya.